So we are going to uh, continue our studies in the book of Romans, uh, in chapter 2. And you'll have uh, remembered, I hope, the last, the last week we were looking at the, the darkness of the human condition. And uh, as we come to chapter 2, uh, there is a, a consequence of all of this that uh, the, Paul wants to, to draw the attention of his readers to. Because he begins with, therefore. And uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Let's hear God's words. I'm going to read the first five verses. And quite challenging verses they are. Therefore, says Paul, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard, impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself, on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Well, we have seen what Paul is about in this letter. He is uh, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, sent into the world to be uh, a preacher of the gospel, uh, a gospel about Jesus Christ himself. through, and through the preaching of that gospel of Jesus Christ, eternal salvation comes to both Jew and Gentile, to all peoples across the earth. And Paul's uh, ambition is to go to new fields uh, to be able to preach the gospel. And it's this message that both grips Paul and propels him out into the world. Paul is himself, of course, a Jew, uh, the best of the best, uh, and yet at one time he was opposed to the church and to the gospel, but he had his eyes opened to what God was doing in Jesus Christ, and he had come to realize that God, in fact, was acting in righteousness to bring about the offer of righteousness in Christ Jesus, which solves the problem of the unrighteousness of the world. Now, in order to to grasp the depths of the problem, uh, from chapter 1, verse 18 onwards, we have seen Paul begin to explore the depths of the problem of the unrighteousness of mankind. A problem so deep that left to himself, mankind uh, willingly and gladly uh, throws out and chucks out any sense or evidence of God onto the rubbish heap and chooses to ignore God. 
and instead begins to follow the passions of his or her heart, seeking to satisfy those driving desires and their minds being given over to debased things, that their thinking becomes futile. And uh, we live in a society today, don't we, where uh, many people would agree with this statement, uh, if it feels so right, how can it be wrong? Because people are driven by their passions. If it feels right, then who should do it? It's used to justify all kinds of behavior. Now this is uh, no academic discussion that Paul is leading us through. Uh, because the, this desire to avoid the God who made them leads to a cascade of effects. And we've uh, worked our way through some of those effects. Verse 21, For though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking, and, f- and their foolish hearts were darkened. Or verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in their lust, the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. Or verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Or verse 29, uh, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And so it goes on. What a litany. I I came across an example of this decline uh, and craziness that people enter into. Uh, when I was reading something last week, um, uh, I don't know if any of you have read Carl Truman's uh, latest book, the, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Uh, a very, it's quite academic, so I, uh, you have to be pretty committed to get through it. Um, but he traces out the intellectual history uh, and trajectory of the Western world to try and understand where we're at today as a Western society. And there's one character who turns up in this history, a guy called uh, William Reich, um, a one-time colleague of uh, Sigmund Freud uh, almost a hundred years ago, who argued that complete sexual freedom was necessary to throw off oppressive authoritarian, the, the oppressive authoritarian culture of the family. And in fact, uh, political freedom was related to this idea of sexual freedom. But it's interesting to follow his life. And Truman tells us what happened to him. He indulged in stranger and stranger obsessions. Even Freud described him as odd. If you know anything about Freud, he was pretty odd himself. In later years, he became interested in UFOs developed a machine for concentrating sexual energy. He died in 1957, paranoid and widely dismissed as crazy. If you want an example, and this is an extreme example, I admit, if you want an example of the craziness of a world without God, this is a prime example. We can write off such people perhaps as unusually odd characters, but his writing was actually remarkable 
uh, remarkably influential, according to Truman. So it's no surprise then that this thinking without God generates all kinds of effects. And we've just read that litany of effects that Paul describes in verses 29 and 30. And it's this that Paul says that is evidence of the wrath of God against such unrighteousness. And it makes abundantly plain the desperate need mankind has for salvation and a righteousness that they have lost but they need and only God can provide. And it's only available in and through Jesus Christ. Well, we've gone pretty deeply into the misery of the human condition. Uh, but Paul is not finished there. And you might be thinking, why, <laughs> why did I come to today to get more of the same? Uh, just hang on in there. We just need to keep persisting with Paul, considering the bad news, in order to fully grasp the good news of the gospel, and how, why the gospel is so utterly necessary for us. And the first thing I want to talk to you about is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. You see this in verse 1 of chapter 2. I want you to look at the first verse and notice something about it. uh, Something significant about it. Uh, Up to now Paul has been talking to the Roman church about the world in which they live. Uh, Paul's not actually writing an evangelistic tract here. He's writing to Christians about the world in which they live. But it seems as though Paul here is is entering into almost a little bit of role play where uh, he addresses a man and he addresses this particular man directly. And so he says in verse 1, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. And then in verse 3, he says, Do you suppose... Oh man, and he makes a suggestion. And in these five verses, he speaks in the second person singular. He speaks of you, this man. This kind of hypothetical man. Who is this man? This example man. Who is it? Well, to get to the point, I I believe that Paul is addressing the Jews in the Roman congregation. And there are three main reasons why. Uh, Let me just run through them quickly. First of all, uh, the Jews were in the habit of passing judgment on Gentiles. They saw themselves as holier than the Gentiles. They were well aware that they were privileged people in God's eyes. And so, uh, passing judgment on everyone else was common for them. That's the culture that they had come out of. The second reason is that the Jews had had a rich experience of the kindness and patience and forbearance of God in their history. And so Paul refers to those in verse 4. And it's quite a pointed statement he makes in verse 4 to the Jews. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? And then the third reason... I think he's writing to Jews in the congregation, is that Jesus' experience of the Pharisees was of exactly this kind. That the Pharisees looked down upon sinners, they separated themselves from them, and they judged them. And in fact, Jesus had this common name for them, hypocrites. 
hypocrites. And he didn't pull his punches. Jesus didn't pull his punches. He was very straight, very direct with them. And so I think Paul is most likely addressing people who are Jewish, who may be calling themselves Christians, but as verse 1 makes clear, they're actually hypocrites. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And it's not difficult, I think, for us to see this uh, in this uh, very present day application. This is an address to those kinds of people who are able to look at the world and see all its problems and all its ills and have opinions about what should be done about it, yet at the same time secretly indulge in all the same vices that the world has to offer. For example, you you and I, we could agree with one another that the Bible teaches against getting drunk, and it does. We read a passage from Romans 13 on it this morning, where it was mentioned. Or the same could be said of sexual morality. Uh, The Bible is clear, yet you could be indulging in all kinds of sexual immorality in in the privacy of your own home, on the privacy of your phone. And Paul says, you, the judge, practice the very same things. Being a, being a religious hypocrite, therefore, could be the most dangerous position to be in. Because you may be smugly content with your own religious performance and think you have everything worked out and you're pretty good at being a good person as far as other people are concerned. But you may be unable to see the complete depth of your need and the scale of the problem that you face. And this is what Paul then goes on to next. What is the scale of the problem? And and Paul goes on then to speak about the judge. God the judge. In verses 2 and 3. So that's the second thing. Let's think about, so hypocrisy is a serious problem for people in the church. But God the judge is there. Secondly, you see the fact is that the judgment of God falls not only on the the flagrant, open, Gentile or pagan sinner who has been given over to the futile thinking and the following of the passions of his heart, but also falls on the religious hypocrite too. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. God is a judge. As you pass judgment upon all the sins of men and women, God is a God of justice. And it's one of the reasons why people created by God have a sense of justice themselves. We all have that sense of justice. And actually, don't we all want justice? We know that justice is right. But the Bible tells us that God will carry out His justice finally and completely one day. And the problem for us is that this justice is complete and exhaustive. Every sin, every selfish thought, every word that comes out of our mouths, all of it, he judges it. And he judges the religious hypocrite. 
And no amount of religion or religious behavior can cover up for the sins that are hidden from the eyes of other people. All things are seen by the eyes of God. I just ask you today, is there a religious hypocrite in this room? Is there anyone here who misguidedly thinks that he or she can kid God that you don't deserve judgment? Verse 2 tells us something vitally important. And I think, um, I have to say that the ESV, I think, flunks the translation here. Uh, how, how dare I say such a thing? Uh, well, that's my job, I suppose. I, I'm allowed to say things like that. But I think that the translation is not quite right here. Uh, so we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. That phrase, rightly falls, uh, should probably say... Uh, according to truth. We know that the judgment of God according to truth is according to truth on those who do such things. According to truth. And it's such an important statement. God judges according to truth. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, you may remember Christopher Hitchens, a well-known writer uh, atheist writer who died almost 10 years ago now, uh, was known as one of the new atheists. They're kind of out of fashion now. Um, even they have fallen foul of the new new morality. But uh, Christopher Hitchens once said that he did not like the idea of uh, the judgment of God in the Bible because there was no jury, there was no right of appeal, there was no access to a lawyer, um, And clearly those things, those are things that we need in a sinful world. We do not leave the decision of guilt in the hands of one man. And even juries can get things wrong or be corrupted. And hence the whole process of appeal that we need in a a, a properly functioning legal system. And uh, we may not be able, personally may not be able to make the best case to defend ourselves. And so we need a skilled lawyer to be able to do it for us. So we need all these things in our human society. But God doesn't need all those things. God is omniscient. He knows all the facts. God is incorruptible. He will not pervert justice. He is all-powerful. He will carry out, and he is able to carry out the judgment that he comes to. His judgment is according to truth. And when he makes it, it is right. And it is final. So i just ask today, again, are you ready to meet this judge? Everyone will meet this judge. Everyone's going to meet him. Have you got everything covered in your life? With all your sin? Whether it's open or secret? What's going to happen to you on that day when you meet God? And you come before that tribunal of heaven? Which brings me to the third point. God's purposeful patience. God's purposeful patience in verse 4. And it's such another important statement. Let me read it. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness 
is meant to lead you to repentance. God's patience means that there is still time. God is not carrying out his judgment right now, though he could. Some of you may not get home tonight, because God calls you home. Always got to remember that. But it seems that God is patient, and he's, he waits, and he reserves that judgment till some time later. And now, while you're still living and breathing, he is showing restraint, patience, and his kindness. And for all human beings, God waits for the whole of their lives before death utters that person into his presence and into that court of heaven. While on this earth, he shows kindness in all sorts of ways to people, whether it's just simply the, the good things of life that you, we can all enjoy, things that, of life that are available to all. The sun shines on the, the righteous and the wicked alike, doesn't it? So many good things. Or the particular benefits, for example, that the Jews had, where they had a heritage of God's special dealings with his covenant people. Or the blessings that you and I can, could, may well have had in families where our parents instruct us in the ways of God. So many blessings that we've had. And God has shown his kindness to us continually. But it's not as though God is, was showing his kindness now only to take it away later in one final cynical maneuver. No, actually the patience of God that God has shown is purposeful. He intends it for a purpose. And at the end of verse 4, he tells us what that purpose is. The whole purpose of it is to lead you to repentance. In other words, this time of waiting for God is in order that there is time for you and I to turn away from the ungodliness and unrighteousness that we have been steeped in. The ungodliness of the pagan or the stubborn hypocrisy of the religious person. What is meant by repentance? What does Paul mean by repentance? Well, it's not simply remorse or sadness about sins of the past. You know, it's quite possible for, for us, isn't it, to, uh, to be full of regrets about things that have been said or done in the past in our lives. And we carry those regrets around with us and sometimes they're worked out in bad ways for us and maybe affected us profoundly. And we can have regret and remorse about all of these things. And we could still be perpetrating sins ourselves, even though that's all happened to us. That's remorse or sadness about certain effects of sins. But the problem with it is there's not necessarily any hatred of the sin itself. If you hated the sin that you committed, that you now regret, you wouldn't want to continue doing it. And that actually is what repentance is. It's a motion. It's a turning away from sin because it is sin, and you hate it, 
and turning to Christ for salvation from the sin because you have come to love him. And this is what God intends in all his patience and kindness. That there be this turning and repenting. Friends, I guess this is something that all pastors share. But uh, a fear that that I have, and uh, many pastors I know have, is that there may be some in their congregations who have never truly repented of sin in their lives. You know, you may find someone who loves coming to church, loves being with Christians. And that person loves various things about the church. You may even love the stories about Jesus. You may love the singing. You may love the friendliness and so on. But you don't know yet this real deep inward sense of horror at your own sin. You don't feel a need to be free of it. And let's be clear. We have all experienced what revulsion is. What do you feel like when you come across something in your fridge that you didn't realize was there and it's now green? You feel that sense of revulsion. You may even feel physically sick as you try and take it out and put it in the bin. It looks terrible. It smells terrible. You want rid of it. But here's the question. Have you had the same kind of response when you discover sin in your own heart? It causes you to want to, uh, to re- be repelled by it and turn away from it. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever had that kind of experience? Which brings us now to the final point. So repentance leads us to this final point in verse 5. The judgment to come. Here's what's going to happen for people who don't repent of sin. You have already got a hard heart. And it will remain hard and may even get harder. And you will continue in your sins. And Paul teaches us here in verse 5 that those sins are not a matter of indifference to God. But actually those sins are storing up for you uh, wrath in the day of judgment. With every sin... More wrath, like bricks being added to a tower, which one day will come crashing down upon you in judgment. Are you depressed yet? Fairly miserable message that I brought to you this evening from the Word of God. What's the answer to all of this? Well, I think we already ought to know. Paul's given us, uh, he's signaled it in chapter 1. Paul is telling us all of this because he wants us to understand the glory and the wonder and the amazing work of Jesus Christ. This Jesus Christ who is sinless and spotless, who lived a perfect and righteous life, but suffered an unjust death for a reason, to deal with our sin problem. This morning we were We touched on this whole idea of covenant headship. Adam is the head 
of a fallen humanity for whom there is no hope and everybody is in Adam and everyone is lost if they remain in Adam but Christ has come as a an, an, an last Adam a new covenant head and if we can be moved into Christ we can be saved that all the benefits that he has won for us on the cross can become ours that he suffered this unjust death to deal with our sin problem, was raised to life so that we too could be like him and with him in eternal life. And all of it through faith. Through faith, it's so simple. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust him with all your heart, to turn away from your sin and repentance and come to Christ in faith. Sounds so easy, doesn't it? That's why people find the gospel so difficult to believe, and yet it's true. It's easy, in one sense it is, it's easy for us. Because you, can't, you and I, we can't do anything about the sin problem. Only Jesus Christ can do it. And the faith that brings Jesus into your life and all the benefits of the salvation that he brings, even that comes from God himself. Oh, the grace of God, that he comes and he gives people faith to believe. And as it were, it becomes the the means, the instrument by which the saving grace comes to us. And how do you know that you've got that saving faith? How do you know you've got real saving faith? You begin to see it in the perfection and beauty that the Lord Jesus Christ begins to work in your life. The fruit of the Spirit. And you cannot but hate The grubby filthiness of your sin. And you have to be free of it. Real faith does that to you. Real faith says, I don't want anything more to do with that. And so, real faith also goes along with real repentance. And that's how you know when somebody has truly been saved by the gospel of Christ. They're no longer the same. They never will be. And the power of salvation continues to be at work in a person with our real faith in such a way that turning from sin becomes normal. It's the normal Christian life. I wonder if that describes you today. Do you have that Jesus in your life that saves you from the judgment to come and turns you, makes you a new man or a new woman? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, the clarity again with which your word speaks. We come before an awesome God who is judge of all the earth. And Lord our God, we pray that you would uh, help us to respond rightly to your word. That we would come in faith in Jesus Christ, but also repentant, turning away from our sin. And Lord, we look back on this past week and we can think of perhaps many areas where we have succumbed to temptation. And indeed we have enjoyed the sensation of that temptation. And it's all been driven by our sinful passions. Father, give us a hatred of those sins. And instead replace it with a love for the glory of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.